got your Bible, open it up to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. After tonight, we will have only one chapter left in the Gospel of John. I went back in my files and found that our first sermon on the Gospel of John was way back on March 13, 2016. So two, almost two and a half years, uh, we've been looking at the Gospel of John. Of course, we've taken some breaks and we've done some other things. We've watched some videos and had our hiatuses and things like that. But I'm thankful we have stayed the course and stayed true and nearly finished this great Gospel about the life of Jesus Christ. Last week we ended verse 18, chapter 20. And verse 18 ends with Mary Magdalene making her announcement to the disciples that she had seen Jesus and the things that he had spoken to her. And the Gospel of John doesn't mention the other people who saw Jesus right after his resurrection. We're told the other ladies that were uh, with Mary Magdalene and other Gospels talk about the other ladies that were with her. They also saw Jesus. Uh, one of the Gospels talk about the Apostle Peter uh, seeing Jesus being re resurrected. Of course, the two witnesses that were on the road to Emmaus, they also saw Jesus after the resurrection. But there's also no testimony here between verse 18 and verse 19 of the disciples' reaction to Mary Magdalene. And uh, that's where we ended verse 18. It says that she came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. And then verse 19 tells us that same day in the evening, so later on in the day, those disciples were gathered together. And so there's some space missing. I'm always curious. I wonder what the disciples' uh, reaction was. Well, we're going to get to that in just a second. But let's read our scripture, verses 19 all the way through verse 31. Uh, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Verse 24. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, uh, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them, Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Verse 30, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that believing you may have life in his name. Let's pause a moment for prayer. Father, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for what it does to us. Lord, it changes us. It, it fosters faith within us. It, it grows our belief. It grows our unbelief into belief. Lord, it breaks down walls and barriers that we have erected through our sinfulness. And Lord, it causes us to have peace. Causes us to have peace when all else is peaceless. When all else is at war, if you will. Lord, we pray that your will, your word, your spirit would influence us this evening. It is in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. I think it, uh, like I said, it doesn't give us a, a, an, an idea of their reaction between verse 18 and 19. You know, they hear her testify sometime in the morning that she had seen Jesus and all these things that Jesus had told her to tell them. Verse 19 tells us it's in the evening. And I think we can say their initial reaction may have been unbelief. Their initial reaction may have been doubts. Uh, their initial reaction may have said, been, uh, really, I don't know. And, and here in John, verse 19, it tells us that they were in a room and the doors were shut. The idea here is that they are hiding behind doors that were shut up and locked up. Nobody could get in unless they uh, unlocked or unlatched that door from the inside. You know, I love the Bible for many reasons. Many verses, there are many verses that speak to me. But one of the reasons that I love the Bible is that it always gives us a realistic picture of the followers of Jesus Christ. Now, if the Word of God was false, you know what it would do right there? It would say, and the followers of Jesus bravely went out and forged the way for the gospel in the world. It doesn't tell us that. It tells us that his followers were hiding behind a locked door. I don't know about you, I can relate to that. I don't know about you, but I can relate to having those moments of fear and those moments of uncertainty. I mean, I know we're Texans, and so there's not much that intimidates us, right? Nothing scares me. I'm from Texas, man. Come on. I mean, I live in the land of rattlesnakes and water moccasins and copperheads and poisonous spiders and thunderstorms and tornadoes and hurricanes. Come on. You think I'm afraid? But I think I can relate to their fear. They had just seen their leader executed. Surely they thought they would be next. But then, Jesus shows up. And I wonder if you can imagine this scene in verses 19 through 23. There's a few different scenes in this scripture. And in verses 19 through 23, it's this first scene, and they're behind those closed doors. And I wonder if they're perhaps, they're just, what are we going to do? Maybe they're going back and forth about different options. Let's get our passports together. Let's go to Canada or something like that, right? But Jesus shows up through these locked doors and twice extends to them a greeting of peace in this first scene. He says it to them, peace be to you, peace be to you. And this is a normal greeting for the Jews. In the Hebrew, the word is shalom. And it's a word that they would use to greet, and it's a word that they would use to basically say goodbye. It's a, a, a parting and a greeting as well. Only here it is the Greek word, uh, irene. It's the, it's the same word, peace, translated, but there's a little bit of a different idea here. You see, the Greek word for peace, is, is while it is also a greeting sometimes, this peace is also a realized state of the mind, a realized state of our being, a realized state of our soul 
that can come only by the way of knowing peace. The way of peace, by the way, is the way of Christ. Jesus knew His disciples were troubled. He knew they would be afraid. He knew they would have a hard time. You know, sometime before this, you'll remember, we read this verse, John chapter 16, verse 33, I've said these things to, me, to you that in me you may have peace, irene. In the world you will have tri tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is a peace that we can only know through Jesus Christ. And so here he is now coming to comfort them and bestow upon them a verbal blessing of wanting peace for them and in them. There's two really very interesting statements that John records in this scene. First one is found in verse 22. Maybe you noticed that as well. Verse 22, and he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, some believe that at this moment, that's when the disciples received the actual gift of the Holy Spirit. But that's not going to happen right here. That doesn't happen for several weeks after Jesus ascends into heaven and the, the time of Pentecost comes. They're all gathered together for the festival of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit falls upon uh, all those 120 witnesses in the upper, upper room and they start testifying about all the things of Christ. That's not what happens here. What this is is a symbolic gesture. You see, when God first created physical man, do you know what, do you, do you remember what he did to that physical man? Breathed on him. And in breathing on him, physical man received physical life. Here, you could almost say the disciples are in this upper room and they have, because of fear, lost their spiritual life. And Jesus, in a symbolic gesture, says, Receive spiritual life. Receive the courage that only comes through me. So this is more than likely a symbolic term of teaching for the disciples. Uh, it, it's, it's the same idea of, of breathing life into them. The next verse is obviously very interesting and confusing. This idea of forgiving sins or attaining sins on people. Does Jesus really intend to say that the forgiveness of everyone's sins hinges on the decision of the disciples? Because that's what it sounds like there in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Does our forgiveness hinge on these disciples? Simply put, I don't, uh, I don't think there's any way that we could correlate that with all the rest of the gospel and what it teaches us about justification, if, if this is what he intended, then his death was a complete waste of time. If that's what Jesus intended, there was no need for him to go to the cross whatsoever. If he, if he intended that, then he also completely contradicts himself when he teaches that only God can forgive sins. And we are not justified by our faith in him, but instead our faith in them the disciples. So this cannot be his intention. This cannot be the understanding. And surely those men in our time and in earlier times that took this verse and made it seem that only a certain segment of man could bestow forgiveness on those who confess their sins to them is a complete and errant teaching. I'm not going to go to denominations, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Our confession is to be made first and foremost to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one that forgives us for sins. So then what does he mean? 
Simply put, this is an expression of the power and the authority that Jesus has and that His Word has. That is, to declare the glorious justification through Christ's atoning sacrifice alone. And when you and I declare this, when the disciples declare this, and someone believes on account of that work which Christ does through them or through us, my work through God, through this declaration, then their sins are forgiven. In other words, when I declare the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and someone out there because of the work of God on their heart believes, their sins are forgiven. Absolutely. But when any of those who hear this glorious declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ choose not to believe, or when I choose not to declare, then their sins are retained. There is no opportunity to, see, or to have forgiveness for sins, which puts the impetus on the disciples, which puts the impetus on us, the motivation. We must be about declaring the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's given us to do. What we do not realize until verse 24 is that Thomas is not with them. Where is he, I wonder? Why isn't he up there with them, with the other disciples? Why is he not gathered with the disciples in the upper room? If they were up there because they were frightened, is it possible he was not there because he was not frightened? Maybe he was out fishing. Maybe he was out setting his deer feeder. Uh, deer season may have been right around the corner for them. I don't know. But he is with them now, and they are trying to convince him of what they have seen. You know, there's a, a little underlying side note truth here. See what you miss when you skip the gathering of the brethren. You never know when Jesus is going to show up. And when you miss out on Jesus showing up, everybody else is left convincing you what you missed. So he is not willing to believe the testimony of his friends. Have you ever had a friend you've tried to convince of something amazing happen? Something that you saw happen and, and their response there is, there's no way that could happen. There's no way you caught that many fish. There's no way you saw Elvis at the Piggly Wiggly. Come on now, I don't believe you. And because they have not witnessed what you have witnessed, they will not believe because they did not see it with their own two eyes. That's Thomas. That's what's going on with him right now. He's got doubt. He's got unbelief because he set a standard that I must see it in order to believe it. Believe it. And, and frankly, when we read his request there in, 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 the, in these verses, in verse 25 specifically, it's kind of gross, isn't it? I want to stick my hands in his nail holes? Come on. I mean, it reminds me of when I was a kid and my grandfather had a foot of his colon cut out and he had a six-inch incision. He went around wanting to show everybody. Come on, Grandpa, put your shirt down. We don't want to see that thing. It's just kind of gross. Why does he want to stick his hands into the holes of Jesus, into the nail holes of Jesus? And that's because he's struggling with unbelief. It's because he's got some doubt going on. Now, some of us understand that there's a little bit of a difference between doubt or unbelief, uh, between doubt and disbelief. And we might ask, what's the difference? Often doubt is a natural inclination that we have about things which we are unsure in other words, uh, the Bible dictionary defines it this way. It is the uncertainty one has because of their own ignorance. But doubt can often lead to unbelief. 
the major difference is that belief and unbelief deals with our will. Willing to believe, willing not to believe. Willing to practice faith and willing not to practice faith. And what does he say at the end of verse 25? I will not believe. He has set a condition, and unless his condition is met, being met, he will not believe. He is willfully unbelieving in the resurrection of his Lord and of his Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but this little statement reminds me of Job. Unless God meets my conditions, I will not be satisfied. And you know what happens sometimes when we put God on the, on the, on the, on the witness stand? He shows up. And in this case, Jesus does eventually show up and, and puts uh, uh, Thomas to the test. Isn't it interesting, though, that while Thomas refuses to put faith in the testimony of his brethren about Jesus, he was willing to put faith in his own test or conditions of unbelief. Essentially, he willed his unbelief in Jesus, yet willed his belief in his own abilities to discern through his own physical ability to see and feel. You see, often uh, someone's unbelief in Jesus Christ is not due because they're unable to believe. It's because they have willed themselves to not believe or to believe certain things. We have to understand what we're dealing with when we're dealing with an unbeliever. We need to understand what we're dealing with when we're dealing with someone who says they doubt, but it may actually be just a willful willfulness to not believe in what has happened. Here, Thomas, so Jesus shows up. And he says to him, here, come on, Thomas, come and stick your hands in my nail holes, weirdo. I mean, I don't know, not Jesus. I mean, Jesus doesn't call him a weirdo, but I could imagine him calling Thomas a weirdo. Come on, stick him in there. You got to feel it. Here you go. Put your hand in there. Fill the nail hole in there. Come on. He doesn't say that, but I often imagine the sense of humor God had to have had to put up with the, 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 the silliness of humanity. And, and Jesus is purposeful. He addresses Thomas full on. What does he say to him? Stop your unbelief. Perhaps this is the reproach mentioned in the other gospel, Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. It says that Jesus reproached the disciples for their unbelief. Perhaps this is the uh, uh, reproach that Mark is talking about. And seeing Jesus and feeling the nail holes, Thomas believes. And he confesses this belief, my Lord and my God, which is a wonderful confession to make. Wonderful thing to understand and believe and, and confess. But in this case, what has happened is that seeing is believing. But should it be? Should we rely on our eyes to confirm something of trust? There are some really important thoughts in this one scene captured in verses 27 through 29. The first thought is this, Jesus loves Thomas enough to address his doubts and his unbelief. You know, I don't know about you, I, by the way, Thomas here in verse 24, he was called the twin. Uh, Didymus is the Greek word there, and it literally means twin. We have no idea who his twin is, but I can relate to him. I don't know about you, but I've got doubts sometimes. I deal with things, and sometimes it's, it really is a, a willful un belief. I, I can relate to him. I may be his twin brother. I don't know. I'm thankful Jesus does not show up and kick Thomas out. You don't want to believe? Then get out of here. I don't need you. I, 
brought you into this world, literally, and I can take you out, right? We often view Thomas in negativity because of this. We call him Doubting Thomas. That title is nowhere in the Bible, by the way. Jesus never calls him Doubting Thomas. God never calls him Doubting Thomas. That's a title we put on him. Something I was wondering about while I was looking at this, is it possible Thomas was just the only one brave enough to express what everybody else was already thinking? Is it possible that all the other disciples had the same unbelief going on until Jesus showed up? They just never expressed it? Makes me wonder. I think think that's certainly the case. Maybe we should change his name to Thomas the Brave, right? He's also the one in verse 14 when Jesus starts talking about the way. He's the one who says, can you tell us about the way? I mean, he's the one brave enough to ask the question that everybody else is probably ask, uh, uh, wondering about in John 14. What is the way? Jesus says, I am the way, Thomas, of the truth and the life. Nevertheless, hear this statement Jesus makes in, in verse 29. Looking at verse 29, he says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. And I don't think that's a scolding, by the way. But I think Jesus is leading up to something. And church, I want you to hear the rest of verse 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We need to hear that blessing from God. You need to receive it. Let me just check. Have any of you, with your own two eyes, ever seen a physical manifestation of Jesus Christ? I don't mean the effects of Jesus Christ. I mean a literal, like, face, body, flowing hair, nail holes. Anybody ever seen that? No, any of you ever heard an audible voice from the heavens saying, Glinda, this is Jesus, do this and believe this, right? None of us have ever heard a voice, you know, fill in the blank, your own name there. Anybody ever heard an audible voice like that? I don't mean a voice in your spirit. I don't mean hearing the voice while you read his word. I mean an actual audible voice. Anybody? No, right? We've not seen him with our own two eyes. We've not heard him with our own two ears. We've never put our hands into his nail holes. And yet you believe? And yet you have willed yourself to believe because of what this says? You've willed yourself to have belief instead of unbelief. I want to encourage you in that. I want you to, I want you to just engrave this blessing from Jesus on your life. Anytime you're feeling discouraged about your personal faith or what you may be doing for Christ, I want you to remember this blessing. Blessed are you who have not seen and yet believe. That's something that Jesus is speaking to every single one of us who have put their faith in Him as Lord and Savior. Blessed are you that have never seen, yet you believe in the truth about Him, about His death, about His resurrection, about His eternal salvation. But this statement by Jesus should also give us this. An understanding for those we know that still do not believe and trust in Christ as Savior. Now, I've made statements like this before. I just don't know why people don't go on and believe. And really, sometimes I wonder about it. But when I read a scripture like this, I'm taken back to realize, okay, I can get it. Because if the 11 disciples that were left behind who saw Jesus crucified, buried, and then rose again, who put their hands into the nail holes, were still doubting who he was or what he had done, 
Surely we can understand 2,000 years later, the guy down the street from us saying, I just don't know if I can believe in this. And we can start to understand our need to focus our prayers on that individual and his unbelief. Focus our prayers on that individual and the Holy Spirit convincing them. Now, often you'll hear me say, Holy Spirit, convict and convince those who need you as Lord and Savior. Because that's a real prayer need. Because those who are unbelieving are unbelieving because they have not seen and not heard. This should also give us a grateful heart for our salvation. If you read that verse again and and you realize, wow, I am blessed because I have not seen, yet I have believed. Have a grateful heart because it is because of the Holy Spirit's work on your life that you do believe. It is because of Jesus' grace on your life that He opened up our eyes and allowed us to see with spiritual eyes the truth of Jesus Christ. Real quick, let me close this out. What do we do now? 2,000 years later, these words still apply. And we should see the intention for Jesus in His disciples and in us. Three intentions I want you to get this evening from this scripture. Number one is this. He intends that we receive peace. Three times in this scripture, He says this to His disciples. Peace be upon you. Or peace to you. The third time is after uh, Thomas shows up and Jesus says it again to them. Peace. I want you to experience peace. Peace to you. Disciples of Christ, that's a blessing upon you as well. Jesus wants you to have peace. Because there are all kinds of troubles that we experience in this world. There are all kinds of heartaches. There are all kinds of problems that uh, that, uh, come into our lives. And often it is a result because we have taken a stand for the name of Jesus Christ or we have taken a stand and say, I will not live that way, the easy way, the world's way, but instead I will live according to God's way. I will do do things according to God's way. And because of that, we often have troubles in our lives. Because we believe in Him, because we claim that belief and that relationship with Him, He promises us that on this side of heaven, we'll have trouble. That is a solemn promise of God we can count on. But these troubles are not to impede us from spreading the gospel message, and they certainly are not to cause us to have unbelief. Those troubles are to strengthen our faith, not to tear down our faith. Peace to you. Peace to you, even in the midst of your hardest trials. And when he showed up to the disciples, it was for the intention of empowering or encouraging And that word, encouraging, isn't a pat on the back, but it literally means to instill courage in those who have lost courage. Disciples, peace upon you. Jesus is for you. Peace on your life. Get ready to spread the gospel. The second intention is this. He intends that we receive His power. That we receive His power. The intention of the Holy Spirit. He tells them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then, Several weeks later, they received the Holy Spirit. And we learned through the teaching of God's Word, the Bible says that we receive the Holy Spirit the moment we surrender to Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's when the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us. And the intention of that Holy Spirit is not so that we have some shiny new thing to show off to the neighbors. It is for the intention of doing the works of Christ for Christ. 
His instruction for the apostles in Acts 1 was to wait in Jerusalem where they would receive power. That power was through the Holy Spirit during the time of Pentecost. And this was a spiritual power to proclaim the gospel, to persuade the lost to be saved, and perpetuate the growth of the kingdom of God through making disciples. If you've ever had the opportunity to lead someone to salvation in Christ Jesus, it's not because you're a powerful salesman for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's because the Holy Spirit has empowered you to persuade the lost of their need to be saved. And to perpetuate the growth of the kingdom of God through making disciples. Listen, making disciples is our commission through Jesus Christ, but He did not commission us to do that on our own. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that's the purpose of that power. That's the purpose of that power is to do these wonderful works of Jesus Christ. And this is a power we are to receive and practice every single day as long as He leaves us upon this earth. Surely there's some way that we can be about proclaiming, persuading, and perpetuating the growth of the kingdom of God. Finally, His intention is that we receive this purpose. His purpose. What is His purpose? His purpose for us and our calling for the apostles and even for the Word of God is found right there in verses 30 and 31. John sums up this chapter, this, uh, this section of Scripture with this statement. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. And these are written that you may believe. Jesus' purpose for His disciples, Jesus' purpose for us, Jesus' purpose for His Word is so that an unbeliever would stop their unbelief and start their believing in Him. Why? Because when an unbeliever goes from unbelief to belief, God is greatly glorified. God is glorified in that. Just as Jesus did not beat around the bush with Thomas, neither should we. We should see that our purpose aligns with the purposes of God through the gospel, and that is that all may hear and believe. God's will is that all would be saved and none would be lost. John closes this section out with that very statement that this is written, this word is written. And I think we can apply this to the whole of God's word so that you and I and those out there would believe in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Jesus' purpose was for the disciples to believe. Jesus' purpose was for us to believe. And so our purpose should be the same, to find those who are unbelieving and convince them through the power of the Holy Spirit to believe in this gospel message. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this great message of your scripture. Lord, I thank you that we, we have received the glorious gift of salvation through your Holy Spirit, through your precious word. And Father, I pray that you would extend to us the opportunity to go outside these walls and to proclaim this great message to the lost so that we can see those who are unbelieving come to believe. Lord, we pray during this time of invitation, you would help us think about those that we should be praying for, think about those that we should be focusing on, and, and, and seeking to uh, give them the opportunity to hear this message and believe in you as well. Thank you for the listening ear and the encouragement. It's your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with